0: My name is Zeno. It's shortened from the Greek name Zenobio, which means strength. I've always been proud of my name, but tonight I feel far from strong. Past week has been the most challenging week of my entire life. My father used to tell me that often the confusion that I find filling my mind will dissipate if I can just say my thoughts out loud. And I know we are for all intents and purposes strangers, but I'm hoping that tonight I can share my story with you as a way of clearing the fog from my own head. I'm a Roman centurion. I've served Rome with all my heart for the past 23 years. I began as a soldier back when I was only 14 years old. I worked hard and over time rose through the ranks to the level where I currently serve. At the risk of appearing arrogant, I'll tell you that a centurion is chosen for his size, his strength, his dexterity in throwing his spear, as well as his skill in the use of his sword and shield. We really are fighting machines, and we're more interested in executing our orders than talking about our past exploits. I command 100 soldiers. I fight with them in each battle. I lead from the front. I serve together with 59 other centurions, overseeing 6,000 soldiers in our legion, and I've earned the respect of all of them. I'm the top-ranking centurion in our legion. In Latin, the term is primus pillus. It literally means the first file. My group of men are the most respected, brave, and selfless in our entire legion. You can imagine I'm paid well for my service, earning close to 20 times more than the average soldier. I've achieved the peak of service for those who are not born into more prestigious positions like senators or generals. I'm highly respected by my men and the society around me. I model strength. I model devotion to Rome, which is the greatest empire that has ever or will ever exist. You may not understand the greatness of Rome, its gift of peace to the entire world, a peace through our strength, and I will forgive your ignorance for reasons you will soon understand. I've always taken great pride in my accomplishment in my service to Rome and to Caesar. You must know that valor, bravery, power, and discipline are central to who I am, but the events of this week have shaken me. Zeno, the mighty warrior who has stared death in the face without flinching more times than I can count, has come to this moment with a heavy heart, one that's filled with doubts and questions. Let me share with you how it started, just one week ago today. It's weird to be a centurion and hear a car drive by. Oops. My most recent posting has been in Judea, primarily in the city of Jerusalem. As a good soldier, I follow orders. I go and I lead my man wherever we are needed. Judea is the heartland of the Jewish people. They are firmly ruled by Rome, a fact for which they should be thankful, but they never seem to appreciate all that they have been given. Their discontent is fueled by their religion, worship of a creator God that they call Yahweh. They claim that he's the one true God, the creator and ruler of all that exists. It always amazes me how they can hold to these ideas when it's so painfully obvious that their God was defeated by Rome and that they, as a people, are subject to Rome. Yahweh's power doesn't seem to be any match for the power of the great Roman Empire. Caesar lets them continue with their worship rituals. It's a decision that I question, but not one that I'm in any authority to do anything about. Their rituals are the reason that I'm here in the city. The Roman forces have been doubled in Jerusalem this week because it's time for the Jewish celebration of Passover. I don't understand all the details, but in a nutshell, Passover is a celebration of their release from slavery to Egypt that happened over 1,500 years ago. It's a crazy time in this city. The population swells as Jews from all over return to the holy city to observe the feast. As they celebrate their independence, their thoughts often turn to revolt. There seems to be some legend that a king will come and renew their kingdom, casting off the shackles of Rome. Several times the people have tried to revolt against Rome, an act of of complete futility, and it always seems to start during the Passover celebrations. Herod is the local ruler. He acts as an agent of Caesar. He's very paranoid of anyone taking his power, so he doubles the Roman military presence in Jerusalem every year during the feast. This is the ninth time I've been stationed in Jerusalem during Passover. I thought nothing of it, but this week was to be very different from the previous year's. Began on the Sunday, the first day of the week. It's a tremendously busy day. According to Jewish custom, the people are to select a lamb on this day for their Passover sacrifice. The markets were full. My men and I were present, observing the activity, looking for any hint of rebellion. About midday, we got word that something was happening on the eastern side of the city. The gate there is called the Sheep Gate. It got its name from its location as the gate closest to the Jewish temple and the one that people used to bring their sheep through for the sacrifice. The information I got was of a large procession moving toward the city from outside, down the Mount of Olives, toward the gate. My men and I moved into the area to see what was causing all the activity, and what I saw concerned me. There were Jews lining the road into the city, laying down blankets and cloaks on the road as if to prepare a carpet for the arrival of a king. This was peculiar behavior, but these Jews do many things that are hard to understand. The carpet would have been nothing except for the presence of two other elements. The people were waving palm branches. I knew from my training that the palm was their national symbol. My men carried a banner when we marched into battle. The banner had on it a Roman eagle, symbolizing power, strength, and vision. And if the Jews had such a banner, it would have had a palm branch on it. So it was a bit troubling as it appeared to be a sign of patriotism. But what concerned me the most were the words being chanted by the people. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna was an ancient Hebrew word that means save us now. And David was the most famous and loved of all Israel's kings. So if you add to that, blessed is the king who comes, you have the seeds of a rebellion. I was interested to see who it was that was coming, welcomed by all this patriotic fervor. And soon he rounded the bend, a man riding on a donkey. A Donkey, imagine that wherever and whenever I ride, I ride on a powerful war horse, but this man was riding on a donkey by the time one of my men reported to me that his name was Jesus, he, that he was originally from Nazareth. Well, I knew the name, and I knew something about this particular man. Claudius, another centurion who was a friend of mine, had lived in Capernaum, and he told me about him a year or so ago. Claudius had a servant, his name was Mark, and Mark had been with his family for many, many years and through his faithful service had endeared himself to the whole family. He was treated more like a son than a servant. Well, it seems that Mark had fallen ill and was close to the point of death and Claudius' wife had heard of Jesus. She begged Claudius to go to Jesus to see if there was something that he could do. Well, Claudius was a great centurion. He could stand up to an army, but not to his wife. Yet he was hesitant to ask Jesus for help. He was deeply loved by the people of his town, however, and he asked some of the Jewish elders to approach Jesus on his behalf, and they were happy to do so. And within an hour, Jesus was on his way to Claudius' house. I remember the story well. Claudius had told it to me several times. When Jesus was not far from the house, Claudius got a bit nervous because the social impact of a Roman centurion asking for the help of a Jewish rabbi could negatively impact his authority in the region. And in a quick and brilliant move, he sent friends to meet Jesus with this message. Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus must have liked what he heard because Claudius said that before the friends had even returned, Mark woke up completely well. I was intrigued by the story, but not enough to to let these seeds of rebellion take root. I quickly made eye contact with one of the Jewish priests, letting him know that if this didn't change soon, there would be consequences. The priest and his entourage got my message. They quickly interrupted the procession in order to speak with Jesus. I could see they were pleading with him to stop the insanity, but he refused. And the procession continued. At that moment, I had a choice to make. I had the authority and the power to end this. I could order my men and several other centuries of soldiers to kill Jesus on the spot, restoring order, or I could let it continue and just keep an eye on the situation. My years of battle experience told me that sometimes restraint is wise, and so I waited. As they entered the city, Jesus and his followers made their way to the temple. At this point, I sent word for more soldiers to come to assist. The temple would have been a place for a rebellion to start, and I wanted to be ready. But before the backup even arrived, Jesus left the temple. Then he turned and left the city. It was almost eerie to go from such a potentially explosive moment to nothing. Well, I was surprised, but I would not be fooled. I dispatched several men to follow Jesus and keep me updated on his activities. This Passover might be a bit challenging, and we should nip this problem in the bud. I slept that night, but I was troubled by a strange dream. I was in a field outside the village where I grew up watching the sheep. I I had never done this as a boy, so in a dream I wondered why I was there. And as I was thinking in the dream, I noticed the shadow of an eagle circling above, a large and powerful eagle. His intentions were obvious. He was pinpointing one of the lambs. And I felt a sense of danger as the eagle dove toward a single lamb, and I ran toward it, waving my shepherd's staff to scare the eagle away, but he would not be deterred. To my surprise, he didn't attack the lamb, but he landed beside it. And he bowed his majestic head before the lamb, almost as if in an act of worship. It was unnatural. And when I awoke, I couldn't shake the image from my mind. As I was lying there trying to figure out why I would have dreamed such a thing, there was a pounding at my door. And when I opened it, two of my men were there. Jesus was up and moving back toward the city. And the rumor was that he was returning to the temple. I gave the orders to my men to meet me there, 20 of them in the Gentile court of the temple, the rest just outside the temple gate. I pushed the dream aside, I got dressed, and I headed to the Gentile court. You see, the temple in Jerusalem is a huge structure. It's set on the highest point of the city. It covers almost four acres, and it has several courtyards. The outermost courtyard is called the Court of the Gentiles. From what I remember of Jewish history, this court was established by the king Solomon when he built the previous temple, the one that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And the purpose was to give a place where non-Jews could come to worship their god, Yahweh. There were other courts as well, the court of the women, the court of the men, and the court of the priest, but Gentiles were not allowed to enter those. As a Roman centurion, I could go anywhere I wanted, but I also had the wisdom to know that entering these other courts would be nothing more than a provocation, something that would be unwise, especially during Passover week. So I got to the Gentile court with my men just as Jesus arrived. We strode into the merchant's area with purpose. I I wanted them to see this was no social visit. The merchant's area wasn't much different than the market in another section of the city. Vendors would sell animals for sacrifice to pilgrims from distant cities. And the Jewish temple had a tax that had to be paid in the form of a half shekel. And because this was not a common coin throughout the Roman Empire, money changers would set up booths in this area to convert other coins for the travelers to pay the temple tax. It was widely known that the merchants in this area were corrupt They were usually giving kickbacks to temple leadership in order to be permitted a booth in the Gentile court, so their prices and exchange rates were usually very high. They could do this because they had a captive audience. The corruption there was one of the main reasons I couldn't care less about their Yahweh. I was a principled man, a Roman centurion. Integrity and honor were very important, yet these Jewish religious leaders were all about the money. They were worshiping, no doubt but it was not a God that I was interested in. Maybe that's why I was surprised, so surprised by what Jesus did next. He grabbed some of the ropes lying on the ground and fashioned them into a short whip. And next he started turning over the tables of the money changers, coins went everywhere. You can imagine what happened then. Everyone was on their knees, scooping up the money, chasing it as it rolled across the courtyard. As the money changers began to shove the people away in an attempt to protect their investment, Jesus used the whip to keep them at bay. As if that wasn't enough chaos, Jesus opened the pens holding the sheep and the goats, and then they started running everywhere. And at that moment, I laughed, a deep belly laugh, one like I hadn't laughed in years. There were so many things that pleased me about that moment. First, the situation was hilarious, with people and animals scampering everywhere. Second, the hypocritical Jewish leaders were furious, something that really brought me a perverse sense of pleasure, And third, this action by Jesus actually crippled any chance he had of leading a revolution. For a serious attempt at freedom, the leaders of the temple would have to be on board. And at that moment, there was no way they were going to support any action by Jesus. He had just become public enemy number one to them. My worries were over. No need to fear revolt now. The people were too scared to unify without the religious leaders' support. So I signaled to my men that we were free to go. As we left the temple, I could hear Jesus shouting, "'Doesn't the scripture say my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? "'You've made it a den of thieves.'" I have to admit, as I walked away, I felt a tinge of respect and admiration for Jesus. I had never seen a rabbi who actually cared about the people more than the power that came with a religious position. But one thing was sure, I had nothing to fear from this revolutionary. His actions had ended any chance he had of revolution. The one red flag I had about the coming Passover celebrations had just been removed. I reported the situation later that day to Pilate, the governor of Judea. As usual, I wasn't sure if he was even listening to me, but I did my duty. I made my report, and then I waited for orders. Pilate asked me to keep my men on watch at his residence for the week. He was not liked by the Jewish leaders, and Passover made him nervous. I assured him that my men were at his service, and then I took my leave. I thought my interactions with Jesus were over. But at that point, I didn't know the half of what was to come. The days ahead would challenge me in ways I could have never expected.